Good morning. How is everybody? Everybody's good? In royal robes that we don't deserve. How true of a statement that is. So the song before, God has done great things. So we, I, I went, I, I played golf with my, my son on Monday. And as we were walking around the course, I, I, I finally told him that uh, it seems like we can find the negative in everything, right? We can have our weeks or our days, and we can find the negative in everything. It's so easy to find the negative in everything, right? Like I'm a, I'm a sports guy, Dave, you're a sports guy, and right now we really can't find anything good about the Giants, so, you know, so it's, it's easy to find the negative, not only in, in just life, but, but in people. And so I just want to encourage us to, to maybe see things a little bit differently and to start to see if we can see the positive things in our weeks and start praising those things and start praising God for those things because he has done great things. Even if our weeks are, are rough there's something positive within that week. There's something positive in that week. And, and if you need to always claim to a promise, and you're, you're having a rough week, and you need to claim to a promise, hold on to the one where God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. For he is always there for us. And he also says in Luke that we should not fear because he's gladly given us the kingdom. And so when we sing a song like that, that God has done great things, our minds and our hearts and our souls should be flooded with great things that he has done, even the little things he's done in our lives. So I just wish to encourage you that way. If you would, please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy. We're going to start uh, going through 1 Timothy. Today I'm just going to kind of do a I'm going to do a, uh, an introduction to 1 Timothy, and then next week we will start digging our way through 1 Timothy. Now, let's go ahead and uh, um, Dick wrote a note up here that it's tomorrow. So Gina, Gina Battle is having a operation tomorrow, so you know, please pray for Gina and that operation and that it all goes well. And Carla, please let us know if there's anything we can do for Gina and, uh, and you since you're going to be there with her. And please let us know. We're here for you guys. So let's go ahead and pray and then we'll, we'll, we'll dig into this. Father, we thank you that you have done great things and you are a great God. And Lord, you have clothed us in royal robes and Lord may we serve you because you are majestic you are the king of kings and the lord of lords father today I just pray for Gina Lord I pray for her operation I pray Lord that you would comfort her today tomorrow that you would give the doctors guidance that you would guide their hands you would guide their minds you would guide their eyes lord father this is your dear child that they have in their hands and so lord we pray that you would just give gina comfort and give those doctors wisdom father i also pray for those who aren't here those who are maybe battling depression fearful of covid are sick and are ailing lord please Help us to hold them up in our prayers to continue to pray for them, Lord. 
Father, I pray that you would be magnified today as we look through your word. Lord, even though this is an introduction, that there are still things in this letter that we can praise you and glorify you for in all these areas. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit would come, Lord, and have an effect in our lives, Lord, and, and move us to a greater admiration and a greater worship and a, a greater love for you. So, Father, do this in our hearts. We ask it in your name. Amen. So, First Timothy. First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus are all part of the pastoral epistles, is what they say. Now, are they for pastors only? The answer to that is no. They're not for pastors only. Are they directed towards pastors? Well, some of it is, and some of it's not. And so don't think when you hear pastoral epistles that it doesn't apply to you because all of the word of God applies to all of us all of the time. And so we can't sit there and say that there's one letter that Paul wrote that, oh, hey, I can't read these because it doesn't apply to me because it does apply to us. And here's why it applies to us. Look at 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15. They'll be up here. But this is the reason that Paul writes this letter. He says, I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So in Paul's statement here, he says how one ought to behave, how we are to be with one another, how we are to be in the worship service, what we are to look for in the household of God. This is the household of God. That refers to all of us. And not only that, but look at what he says. He says that the church of the living God, so we know that our God is not dead. So when we hear people say God is dead, or back in the 60s when this whole thing of God is dead was coming around, we know that the Bible says that that's not true. He is a living God. And then what is the church? What is the household of God? The household of God is a pillar and a buttress of truth. That's what the household of God is. You want to know what truth is? Come to church. Come to the people. You want to know what truth is? We read our Bibles. This is truth. It is objective truth. It is not subjective. It is objective. And that's what we've been going through in Sunday school. And there's going to be some similarities today and in what we went through in Sunday school today. But that's what the church is. It is the pillar and the buttress of truth. It is the very foundation of truth. And this is the reason Paul writes this letter, that you and I, being in the household of God, which is the pillar and buttress of truth, would know how to behave. So it is an encouraging letter. So the author the author, 1 Timothy 1.1, tells us, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope. So we get who the author of the letter is. The author of the letter is Paul. We get that also in 2 Timothy, where Paul identifies himself as the writer, and in Titus, where Titus identifies Paul as the writer. So we know within these first three epistles that Paul is the writer. And we've learned a lot about Paul. Paul was this Jew who God saved on the road to Damascus. He opened his eyes. And he who once persecuted the church 
is now building up the church, is now preaching the truth, is now evangelizing. He is now preaching the Christ that he once persecuted. So we see that Paul is a changed man. He goes from Saul to Paul. And Christ has done this. And this is the one who writes this letter. He tells us that he is an apostle. He is a a sent out one by the command of God. God had chosen him for this. He is the command of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, our hope. So we see in his, in his declaration right away that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ and Christ is our hope. And it's a hope that doesn't disappoint. Christ will never disappoint. He is the hope that is true. So Paul wrote 1 Timothy after his first imprisonment. Okay? He is out of prison at this moment when he's writing these, when he's writing 1 Timothy. His first imprisonment was right around 62 to 64 AD when he was in Rome. That's when the book of Acts ended was his first imprisonment. So he's writing this letter. Paul wrote 2 Timothy during his second imprisonment. And before his death, and that was in 66 to 67 AD. So we have the authorship of the pastoral epistles, the authorship of First Timothy. Now, Timothy, what's Timothy's name mean, right? Timothy's name means one who honors God. Timothy's name is one who honors God or one who is dear to God. What a precious name. And we'll see this within the next few verses with the character of who Timothy was. He truly was one who lived up to his name. He was one who honors God. And he was one who was dear to God. And Paul even knew this. And Paul saw this in Timothy. So first of all, let's, let's take a glimpse at who Timothy is. So Timothy's father was a Greek. His mother was a Jew. His grandmother was a Jew. And in 2 Timothy, we see that his mother and his grandmother, Eunice and Lois, were instrumental in his rearing of the gospel. But his dad was a Greek. So Timothy was not circumcised, but Paul had him circumcised when he went on the missionary journeys with Paul. So listen to what uh, Acts 16.1 says. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Now it doesn't say his father was a believer, but we know that his mother was a believer, and that is backed up in 2 Timothy chapter 1. So we see that Timothy was a Greek. He was, or his father was a Greek and his mother was a Jew. Timothy was from Lystra, which was a city in the Roman Empire of Galatia. Today is modern-day Turkey. So when we see this in those same verses in 16, Acts 16, 1 through 3, uh, we'll just pick up in 2. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra in Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all know that his father was a Greek. So we see Timothy was from Lystra. He was Paul's child in the faith. He was Paul's child in the faith. Verses uh, 1-2 of 1 Timothy. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. We see this also in verse 18. 
And we see it in 1 Corinthians 4.17, where Paul calls Timothy his child in the faith. So this was our discipleship, right? Paul, what he was doing, Paul poured himself into Timothy. Timothy knew Paul's theology. He knew what Paul stood for because he was his child in the faith. We have this discipleship going on. Paul pouring himself into Timothy. Timothy later pouring himself into others. And likewise, we should be doing the same thing with one another. We should have people in our life that we are discipling, that we are pouring ourselves into, that are within the church, the household of God, the pillar of truth. We should be pouring into them. Not negativity, but positivity. Pointing them to Christ, who is our hope. And that's what Paul did with Timothy. Timothy partnered with Paul on his second missionary journey. That's Acts 16, 1 through 3. Timothy was well spoken of as a sense of godliness. We saw that. He was a brother that was well spoken of in 16, 2. Timothy ministered with Paul in Berea, Acts 17, 10 and 14. In Athens, Acts 17, 15. In Corinth, Acts 18, 1, 5. And 2 Corinthians 1, 19. If anybody wants these verses, I'll be glad to give you all of this. But he was a minister with Paul in his missionary journeys. Timothy also was uh, with Paul in his first Roman imprisonment, Philippians 2, 19 through 23. And Timothy served as a pastor at the church of Ephesus, where we are in this letter. Look at verse 3. He says, as I urged you, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach a different doctrine. So Timothy was left in Ephesus by Paul. Because why? There was some things wrong in Ephesus. There was things wrong with the Ephesus church, and that's why he left them there. Timothy was also imprisoned, and he was released. Listen to Hebrews 12, 20, or thirteen twenty three. He says, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. So Timothy at one point in time was also in prison, but he was released. So we have this idea of who Timothy was. He was a very, God, he was a very godly man. He honored God and he was dear to God. And in the book of Timothy, it says that he was a young man. Now the age differs. Some people believe that he was in his early 20s. Others believe that he was in his late 20s, early 30s. So I don't know which one it is. Paul doesn't say which one it is, but he was a young man as who Timothy was. So now what were the problems that were going on in Ephesus that he left Timothy there for? Because that's what we'll address within there. And they're not only problems that were in Ephesus, but there's problems that we see in the modern day church too. We see these in the modern day church. So there's no difference. This is why this book is active and living and sharper than any two-edged sword. Because it deals even with problems within the church today. So the first thing that Paul addresses with Timothy is there was false doctrine that was going on in the church at Ephesus. Now notice it wasn't outside the church of Ephesus. It was in the church of Ephesus. And Paul in Acts, when he, when he pulls the Ephesian elders to himself, he tells the Ephesian elders that among you wolves will arise 
preaching false doctrines. So he's telling them to take careful watch over the flock. And that is what you all need to hold me and Dick and, and Martin to, that we are elders of Faith Bible Church. We have to protect the flock. We have to protect false doctrine coming in. This is what Paul is doing. He's leaving Timothy in Ephesus with strong, sound doctrinal theology to correct what's going on because wolves have arisen. Listen to 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 7. He says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertion. So there was things going on in there that he had to take care of. Not only do we see this in 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 7, but we see it in verses in chapter 4, 1 through 3, and 6, 3 through 5. So one of the problems that was going on in Ephesus was false doctrine. There was disorder in the worship. And that's in chapter 2, chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. Paul addresses in chapter 2 how we are to pray, what we are to pray for, right? He addresses women's roles within there, which brings us to, to this. That he also was left there because there was a need for qualified leaders. There was a need for qualified leaders. And that he's talking about the elders and the deacons. And we get that in chapters 3, right? We get that in chapter 3. Here, listen, 1 Timothy 1, 3, 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So anyone who aspires to be an elder, it's a noble task. It's a desire that God puts in one's heart to want to shepherd his people to want to pray for his people, to care for his people. And it's a noble task. And then from that point on, he says, therefore, an overseer, this is an elder, it's a bishop, it's a pastor, an overseer, (coughs) excuse me, must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. So, and then he gives these qualifications for the elder. In the church of Ephesus, they were having problems having these qualified elders. And therefore, since these elders were not qualified, there we have the false doctrine coming up. Either that or they were negating their God-called duty to protect the flock from false teaching. So this is why Timothy is there, to bring in qualified leaders. And likewise, we have to do that too. Brothers and sisters, this is crucial for the church of God is they have qualified leaders. It's not the person who gives the most money. It's not the person who has the the, the biggest business. That person, no, it's the qualified person who is to care for the sheep. And we have to, we have to be sure that our elders are qualified to be elders. 
and elders, us three, we have to be sure that our lives reflect this above reproach. And you as a congregation have to hold us to this, being above reproach. Now, does that mean we're going to do it absolutely perfectly? No. Is Timothy looking for the absolute perfect person to fill this? No, because the only perfect person that perfectly fills the eldership, the pastor, the overseer role, the shepherd, is the good shepherd. Jesus is the only one that perfectly fulfills that. But what these qualifications, when we get there in chapter 3, tell us is a Christ-like person who's going to love like Christ, who's going to teach like Christ, who's going to care like Christ, who's going to call out sin like Christ. This is the person that we're, that we're looking for. And likewise, deacons. When we look at deacons, it says, deacons likewise must be dignified, double-tongued, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. So we have qualifications for deacons. And how they care for the body. They care for the people. That's in Acts 7. When Tim, or, uh, Stephen became a deacon, they were to take care of the widows because the apostles want to uh, devote themselves to, to the teaching and prayer of the, of the congregation. So the deacons came in to take care of the people with their needs and, and, their, and their, uh, uh, with their needs. And so deacons must likewise be qualified you know, it's just not anybody who walks through the door. Oh, wow, hey, he looks like a deacon. That's really cool. We have to be crucial to these requirements. They are in the Bible. They are in the Bible. Not everyone is an elder and not everyone is a deacon. But God has specifically equipped within his body for men to be elders and to have deacons. So, he also addresses materialism. Not materialism in the way that we learn today in Sunday school with all these atoms, but materialism in the way of being materialistic. Wanting, 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 wanting. I want this, I want that, I want this, I covet this, I covet that. There was that that was going on. And he's also going to address wealth. Listen to 1 Timothy 6, uh, uh, 6 through 9. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Okay, so he talks about being content right off the bat, right? Godliness with contentment is what? Great gain. Let me ask you this. Are you content? Are you content where you are? Are you content with your home? Are you content with what you wear? Are you content with what you eat? Are you content? I'm going to be the first one to stand up here and admit that I am the most content person you're ever going to see. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. I'm not content. I am not content at all. I'm always looking for the next thing to bring me some kind of satisfaction. And then it goes away. And then I'm looking for the next thing, right? But godliness, see, godliness with contentment. That's why we get contentment, because we're godly. We have this godliness about us. We're happy with where God has us, with, what we're, with, the, with the job God has us in, with uh, uh, the, 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 the work God has us doing, with the, the home that we're in. We're, we're content. For we 
brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out of the world. And I love that saying. We brought nothing into this world we can take nothing out of this world. Job puts it this way, right? Naked we came in and naked we go out. It's the same thing, nothing. We came in with nothing, we go out with nothing. You've never been to a funeral where there was a U-Haul behind the hearse, right? And my dad will agree to this, that if my grandfather... If he could have got a cashier's check and put it in that coffin with him, he would have did it. So this is materialism, materialism. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich, brothers and sisters, listen to the word of God. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. (coughs) Excuse me fall into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. This is those who desire to be rich, who desire to have many things, who desire to have wealth. This is what he had to deal with. Timothy had to come in and he had to deal with the greed and the materialism and the the people that were rich within there. And that's what Paul says. In this letter, those who desire to be rich. Does that describe you, brothers and sisters? We live in America, right? The richer you are, the better you are. The more uh, say you have. This is how we are. There's a desire to, to have wealth because it makes us somebody. But what Paul is saying here is look at what that riches does. Look at, what it, look at what the desire of riches does. You know, and he, he says that the, 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 root, the, the, the root of money is evil or evil, but money, money in itself is not evil. It's the root, right? It's the desire to be rich. Being rich is not bad, but it's that desire to have more. That's what leads you into temptation. So question here, who would rich be? So I'm going to give you a question. How many in here have a toilet that flushes? Raise your hand. Everybody has a toilet that flushes. Guess what? You're rich. You're rich because you have a toilet that flushes. 70% of the world doesn't even use toilet paper. We are rich, brothers and sisters. Every one of us who sit here is rich beyond imagination with materialism be careful don't let that become your desire to have more and more and more because what will happen is you will plunge yourself and other people into ruin and destruction be content with what you have with food and clothing be content So he had to deal with that. So those were the problems, the main problems at Ephesus. False doctrine, disorderly worship, disqualified leaders, and materialism and greed. Kind of sounds like our church today. Sounds like the church today. Very, very, very like the church today. So what are some theological truths in the letter? We've got to look at some theological truths because those are the things that we'll look at. Number one, there's the function of the law. The function of the law. Paul talks about the function of the law in 1 Timothy 1, 5 through 11. He also addresses salvation in 1 Timothy 1, 14 through 16 and 2, 4 through 6. 
Listen to 2, 4 through 6. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So we see where salvation is talked about. We see also the attributes of God. Where we went through some of the attributes of God, we see the attributes of God in 1 Timothy 1.17. To the king of, king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So he addresses God's attributes. These are theological th- themes through the letter. The fall is mentioned in 1 Timothy 2.13 and 14. And this is one where we're going to get into an area where it's kind of it's scary because this is where Paul says that he does not allow a woman to preach or, or to uh, teach or, have, or exercise authority over a man. And then he gives the reason why. And he goes back to the fall and he talks about how Eve was the one who was deceived. Now, men, don't get into this thing of like, yep, that's right, it was the woman. Don't fall into the Adam situation. Adam took the apple. Guess what that means? That means Adam, leadership, right? Adam didn't stand up for his wife. Adam didn't protect his wife. Adam didn't lead his wife. That's what needed to happen. Adam needed to step up to the pulpit. Adam needed to step up to the plate. And he didn't. But Eve was the one who was deceived. Adam wasn't. And this is what we'll, we'll, we'll look at. So we see the fall is within there. We see that, uh, that the, the person of Christ is in there. Listen to 1 Timothy 3.16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Listen to what Paul says in this letter about Christ. He was manifested in the flesh, John 1.1, 1, 1, right? And John 1.14. He was manifest in flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So we see the person of Christ within this letter. We see election in this letter. 1 Timothy 6.12 Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. Wow. How precious that God tells each and every one of us that we were called, that he called us out of the sheepfold, right? He called us out of the miry pits of hell and he brought us into his kingdom and about which you were made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And not only that, not only do we see the attributes of God and the person of Christ and our election, but we will look at the second coming of Christ. This is our hope, brothers and sisters, is the second coming of Christ. He is coming back. He is coming back. If you're here and you're an unbeliever, here's the scariest news you can hear. Christ is coming back. If you do not know him, if you have not repented of your sin, if you have not seen your need for a savior, now, today is the day to repent, to trust Christ, to trust his cross work, to trust that he took his sin, your sin, my sin. He took all of our sin, 
onto himself. And he paid the debt that was due. And he paid the wrath that was due our sin. You have to see your need for Jesus if you sit here as an unbeliever. Because he is coming back. And when he comes back, he will be one of two things to you. If you are an unbeliever, he will be your judge. And he will judge righteously. And he will righteously condemn you to hell without blinking of an eye. Or when he comes back, he will be your savior. And much joy will fill our hearts as we will see him as he is when he comes back triumphantly and he brings us home into our heavenly kingdom. You see, brothers and sisters, the reason we should want to go to heaven is not because there's streets of gold. It's not because there's many mansions. It's none of that. The reason we should desire heaven is because that's where our Savior is. That's where our hearts should be. My desire should be, I want to be where Christ is. And Christ is in heaven. And I want to be where my Savior is. I want to be where, my bri- where the bridegroom is. We are the bride. He is the bridegroom. This should be our desire. So First Timothy talks about his second coming. Listen to verses 6, 14, and 15. To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. This statement will be true when Christ comes back. We will see that he truly is the King of kings. He is the only sovereign, not you and I. So brothers and sisters, that gives us an introduction into 1 Timothy there's many other things that we could talk about through this letter, but we will, we will get into them. So let's be encouraged today. Let's be encouraged as we enter this letter that God has called us to eternal life and that Jesus is coming back. And this letter will tell us that. Let's be encouraged today that we are of the household of God. Not only that, but he is the living God. And that the Bible and this letter that we're, that we're going to be looking at is a pillar in support of the truth. Let us be encouraged today that God is in our midst and he cares how the church functions and he's given us a roadmap to how it should function. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just this little bit of your word, Lord. I just pray now that you would Just guide us today, Lord, in whatever we have to do. May you be seen. May you be glorified. May you be worshiped. May you be lifted high, Lord, in our day today. May we see today, Lord, the great things you have done. Encourage us today, Lord, in all these things. Amen. Please stand as we sing our last song.